Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I don't think you want someone handling the EU trade portfolio whose sole approach is belligerence, because that just results in an impasse, a stalemate, and then people start to do things that you don't want them to do. Welcome to a special edition of Politico's EU Confidential Podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU Editor, and today we're bringing you a conversation with Donald Trump's man in Brussels, the US Ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland. We've been working on this one since previous host Ryan Heath was in the chair, and it all came together when Ryan was back here in Brussels for a brief farewell a couple of days ago. So, Ryan sat down with the ambassador in the stately transatlantic room of the US mission to the EU on Friday. They talked about the chances of a reset in EU-US relations, trade, digital tax and more. We hear a lot of European takes on those topics in the podcast, but this was a chance to get an unvarnished American view. The conversation took place before Politico broke the news this weekend that the US had won a big trade dispute with the EU over Airbus. Ryan and the Ambassador talk a bit about that topic, but we also have additional reaction from the Ambassador following the weekend's news, which we'll bring you at the end of the podcast. So let's get right to it. Here's Ryan Heath talking to Gordon Sondland. Ambassador, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We'll get into the nitty gritty of some policy details in a minute. But one thing I love to check on with a lot of my guests is um, their backstory and their, their roots. And you've got European family history. Why don't you tell us about that? I do. I'm actually the first of two siblings born in the United States. Uh, my parents were both born in Europe. Uh, my mother was born in Berlin. And my father was born in Danzig, which is now Gdansk. So when, when he was born there, it was Germany. It's now Poland. Uh, my sister was born during the war in Uruguay, in Montevideo. So I'm the first, as I said, to be born in the U.S. So I, I not only, it's not just ancestors, it's my direct parents and grandparents mm -hmm. that are, are European. Uh, my grandfather was born in Kiev, in Ukraine. And the others were all born in Central Europe. So, And it sounds like the shift was in that period around the wars. Is that what pushed them to, to head to the U.S.? Yeah, my mother was able to escape. My father was smuggled out of Germany uh, before things got bad. He joined the French Foreign Legion in France and was promptly sent to uh, Africa, fought in Africa, was captured and uh, liberated by the British Army. And then he joined the British Army and finished out wow. the war as a German-speaking member of the British Army. So you can imagine he was quite helpful to them in a lot of their intelligence activities. Indeed. This post is quite homecoming for you then. Exactly. Exactly. Unfortunately, <clears throat> both of my parents are gone, but I'm sure they would be very pleased and proud to see that this homecoming occurred. I'm sure of that too. 
I was intrigued by a comment that you made recently about wanting to reset some of the relationships now that there's a new EU leadership coming into town. Could you tell us a bit about that? What, what do you want to improve from the current relationships, let's say? The first thing I want to improve are the communications. I don't think the communications between the two governments have been as frequent and as effective as they could have been. I think that the initial reaction to President Trump's election uh, by several of the current leaders was, you know, this guy is just someone we're going to wait out and wait for the next president who's going to be far friendlier to us. And I think they miss the point when they make that calculation. President Trump loves Europe. President Trump values the relationship with Europe. President Trump understands the importance of a combined block of 850 million people and $40 trillion of combined GDP. He understands that fully. What President Trump has been trying to do, however, is to fix what several of his predecessors have frankly neglected, which is allowing an, a structural imbalance to continue over many years mm -hmm. to the point of where it becomes more and more difficult as the years go by for U.S. businesses to sell their goods into Europe, whereas it's still fairly easy for Europe to sell its goods to the United States. And fixing that is not without cost and it's not without pain. And so this has fallen on President Trump's plate to fix, and that requires constant and frequent and cordial communication, because these are not easy conversations. And I, I have to say, objectively, the four current leaders uh, have really not been at the table. And I think it's been a, a deliberate strategy of let's ignore him and maybe he'll go away. Mm -hmm. But it really isn't about President Trump. It's about the United States of America. And uh, even the other side of the aisle, who don't share a lot of political views with President Trump, have made it very clear that when it comes to trade, there's very little daylight between the Republicans and the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So once President Trump finishes his term of office, which I expect to be in, in 2024, then uh, if a Democrat is elected president, my guess is they're not going to have a terribly different perspective on this issue from President Trump. So Europe has to get serious and sit down and work with us to fix this. The good news is we believe that the new leaders, the big four, as I, mm -hmm. as I like to refer to them. They'll um, like the sound of that. Huh? They'll like the sound of that. <laughs> uh, well, in each in their own way, they seem like terrific people. Uh, Mike Pompeo and I met with all four of them individually. The chemistry was good. They want to put some of the skirmishes and snarky comments back and forth in the rearview mirror and work on low-hanging fruit, on a productive relationship, uh, on really letting the underlying shared value shine in everything we do. Uh, we can have difficult conversations. We can have disagreements. Uh, but I'm hopeful and cautiously optimistic that this big four will handle the whole thing better than the previous big four. Now, on your point about the work that has to go into maintaining relationships or creating them sometimes, I've got the impression that President Trump is pretty good company. You know, I haven't met the guy. He's a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, so is it? would the other leaders soften up a bit to him if they were able to sort of actually get together with him and have a bit more face time? Oh, I think not only would they soften up, I think that they would enjoy his company I think they could work on a lot of things together, and I think it's President Trump's intent. In fact, the secretary 
made it very clear during our meetings that he would like uh, particularly the leadership to come to Washington sooner rather than later and meet with the president. So none of these engagements have been nailed down yet. Scheduling has to be worked through, but I think it's the president's intent to actively participate in this reset. And beyond those big four, we've got a whole new team of European commissioners, probably 400 new members of the European Parliament. Uh, It's going to be hard for everyone to meet everybody. Is there one thing that you would share with those people? A lot of them do listen to this podcast. You know, what's, what's something they have to keep in mind in order to have a smooth relationship with you here at the mission? I think what they have to keep in mind is we are their friends. We are their allies. We are here for them. And we know that they're there for us. But we have to get past these rigid positions where we go into each other's corners and say our standards, our products have to be a certain way or they're not acceptable to be used or sold in our markets. That's one of the biggest things. I always joke when I have uh, European business leaders in, I ask, especially recently, the CEOs of several large European companies, does anyone here in the room have a home, apartment, condominium, some type of arrangement in the United States? Every single one of them do. I said jokingly, so when you come to the United States, uh, you don't drive our cars because our seatbelts don't meet European standards? Or you don't eat our food because you're afraid that our chicken or our beef isn't safe. So you bring all of your own food with you when you travel to the U.S. and you don't go out to dinner. And, of course, they all laughed because they got the joke. And they said, of course your food is fine and, of course, your cars are fine. And we have a great time when we're in America. We have a great home in New York or in L.A. or wherever they have a home. They said, this isn't about safety. This is about European protectionism. They're the first to put that on the table. And Europeans are entitled to be protectionist, but they're not entitled to be protectionist and not expect their counterparty to not be protectionist. So they can only have it one way or the other. If they want our markets to remain wide open, relatively speaking, then their markets need to become wide open. Otherwise, there will be a quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. So good that we're on the topic of trade already. I would have in my mind as we talk about that both the prospects of a bilateral US-EU trade deal and then of course this broader context where we're at risk of uh, a lot of this trade fighting around the world or we're in it to some extent as well. That reminded me of Maggie Thatcher who used to say about Mikhail Gorbachev, that's a man I can do business with. Do you think Phil Hogan, the new incoming European Trade Commissioner, is he a man you can do business with? I don't think his initial comments um have been helpful. Um, I don't think that saying that you're going to teach President Trump how trade works is cannot be viewed as anything but a very condescending comment. I think if the EU is truly sincere about wanting to engage in a productive discussion, and I'm not suggesting that the EU unilaterally surrender to the United States. I know they have their positions, they have their views, they have their red lines, and whoever handles the trade portfolio, we would expect to vigorously advocate on behalf of the EU, just as our very capable U.S. trade representative, Mr. Lighthizer, will vigorously advocate on behalf of the United States. But I don't think you want someone handling the the EU trade portfolio 
whose sole approach is belligerence, mm-hmm. because that just results in an impasse, a stalemate, and then people start to do things that you don't want them to do. Does that mean we have to not work around, but work below some of that rhetoric, for example? I mean, a lot of Europeans would say the president's pretty forceful in how he talks as well. So is this about having a more intricate set of relationships that sit underneath that sort of headline bluster? But remember, leaders do one thing politically, and the the ministerial level that actually handles the negotiations that have to sit across the table from one another for hours and hours and hours have to be able to get along, have to be able to see each other's viewpoint, and have to work toward a conclusion. And I think Mr. Lighthizer is extremely well-equipped to do that. He's been doing it his entire life. He's one of the world's most experienced trade negotiators. And I would hope that the EU would put someone on the other side of the table that shares his qualifications. Mm -hmm. Now, another issue that is definitely not going to go away is the rise of China and the the rivalry that creates for both the, the EU and the US in lots of different arenas. I have the feeling that the EU and the US share a lot of the concerns about what's happening there, um, but the EU expresses that quite differently. And I wonder whether you think the EU is free-riding a little bit off President Trump being willing to tackle China head-on. I'm going to give the EU the benefit of the doubt. I think that the EU is slowly waking up to the Chinese threat. I think we've seen more of it because a lot more of our businesses have been directly impacted by the theft of intellectual property, by the forced technology transfer. I mentioned this in, a, in an interview not too long ago when I was on my West Coast tour meeting with the largest U.S. companies uh, that are in you know, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and talking to the CEOs. Their level of enthusiasm in doing business in and with China has dropped dramatically. If you had had those same conversations with them five, seven, ten years ago, there would have been a lot of ebullience about all these great things going on in China and the market and so on. But it, it, you know, for all of the cost savings you have in doing business in China, those are counteracted by the theft of your property, the theft of your IP, the rule of law issues in China. So a lot of executives are beginning to sour on doing business in China. And I think the Europeans are slowly coming around to that point of view. This is why I believe that Huawei will not ultimately succeed in penetrating the European market. And I believe that when we can put some of these trade issues behind us, the U.S. and the EU can join hands uh, and create this incredible block in dealing with extraterritorial uh, Chinese uh, moves. Now, on the surface level, it would seem really quite obvious that Europe should be tougher on Huawei because Nokia and Ericsson are two of the companies that would stand to benefit most from Huawei being frozen out or having some severe restrictions on their operations here. And I know that many European governments have started moving in that direction, but they haven't gone as far as the US there. Do you think the the EU needs to coordinate on that front and and get a bit tougher as a bloc? We are coordinating with them. Mm And we are finally beginning to see that the Europeans share our view that 5G is revolutionary. It is not an upgrade from 4G. It is a complete change of how governments, countries, military, civilians will operate over the next decade. 
and they do not want to turn their future over to Chinese manipulation. Um, this isn't about who has smarter software engineers and who can find someone else's you know, bug in a software. This is about who owns and operates the company and what rights do they have to direct the company to, to conduct malign activities. And it's crystal clear to us and to anyone who looks at this that the Chinese own Huawei directly or indirectly and absolutely can direct Huawei to do their bidding. If we can switch topics to another perennial trade issue now, I'm thinking of the the ding-dong legal battles that go between Boeing and Airbus. They seem to have been going on for decades, really. I was wondering if you've got a bit of a status update on what the United States' view is of that and, and the WTO's role in all of it. Well, first of all, the case against Airbus has been going on for the better part of 15 years. And we had a victory in the case, I believe it was back eight years ago, nine years ago. And that would have been the time where the Europeans and Airbus would have had some serious conversations about stopping the launch aid Mm -hmm. and not making the problem worse by accruing even higher damages Mm -hmm or I should say incurring even higher damages or creating higher damages, whatever the the right choice of words is. They sort of went past that like a speed bump that you just drive over and continued the behavior that the whole structure of the WTO and this multilateral rules-based organization, which the EU professes that it is the standard bearer of multinational rules, They're not following their own rules. And so they continued with the launch aid. They were ruled against once. They're being ruled against twice. There'll be a big judgment. The number will be large. And the only way to resolve it is A, to stop the bad behavior, stop giving the aid to Airbus, let Airbus sink or swim on its own, quit enhancing their balance sheet by giving them the benefit of any upside and taking the hit on any downside, How can anyone compete against a company that never has a risk of loss? And that's exactly what Europe is doing with Airbus, and certain countries in Europe are doing with Airbus. So when the number is is made public, and we don't know the number yet either, uh, the only way to resolve it is to either have a negotiation Mm -hmm. or to suspend the concessions and, uh, and put tariffs on certain products until those funds have been recovered. That is the WTA rule, WTO rule. And by that, do we mean effectively a political negotiation? Because it seems like the legal maneuvers haven't... I would, call it a business, I would call it a business negotiation driven by politics. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that's more accurate. And by the way, we've been inviting this negotiation to take place for quite some time so that we wouldn't get to this point. And we have not really received any response from our European friends. I think they want to wait to see the number. Now, one of but the you're th- ready for their call. Sure. Or we're ready to impose the tariffs and recover the funds that way. That's pretty and, clear. And we're ready to do it immediately. There you talking, go, folks. Da- talking days, not weeks or months. <laughs> Very good. Now, I know we're jumping over the shop a little bit, but another issue is... French proposals, and others are interested as well, in digital services taxation. And the French seem to be kind of jumping ahead of the pack on that front. 
and they insist that it's not targeted at American companies. It's but 100% obviously, targeted at American companies. Well, you're very successful, so you'll be disproportionately hit, regardless of what the French say or, or don't say. What's your take there? How, how can uh, France, Europe, US get back into alignment and move forward on that issue together rather than separately? The way they can do it is the way that we've suggested they do it, which is this should go through the OECD, should be a global standard. There shouldn't be a patchwork quilt of various countries imposing various taxes, making this thing complex, unpredictable, fraught with potential litigation, what's included, what's not included. And the French, of course, are seeing the success of American companies, and they want to sort of dip their dipper into the stream of cash flow and take what they believe is their share. We disagree. And uh, if they would do more innovating and less regulating, then they'd have their own stream of cash flow. So we plan to vigorously, vigorously attack that tax once the cooling off period is over. Mm-hmm. The French have a bit of a political tailwind, I might say, not specifically on the tax, but just generally in this environment now where more people are questioning the power of big tech companies and whether they've got too much and whether they're really in control of the services and platforms and everything they've been creating. Do you have any sympathy for this sort of mood that seems to be getting a bit of bipartisan traction in Washington, D.C. at least, that it's, it's time to do more regulation of tech as a field in general? Well, I think you're talking about two different things. You're talking about taxation and regulation. Yeah. And, you know, the philosophy of my party and of this administration is a light touch on regulation. And that's a subjective call. On taxation, I think we already covered that. Absolutely. And then finally, I guess the other big point where there could be a bit of a gulf or a large gulf between the EU and the US is on climate change. And I know that the new commission is going to push that quite strongly. Do you see any climate common ground that that you can occupy or that you can occupy together with the EU so that there is some action that keeps each party happy? I see a lot of common ground. And I think the president and the US administration gets a bad rap in being climate science deniers. I think the Paris Climate Accords are a strategy and a tactic. They're not an outcome, just as many other agreements to which we object are. I think that the president does not want to put the United States in a position to financially, unilaterally disarm and all of a sudden create an enormous burden on the U.S. economy while other countries freely pollute the planet. I think everyone needs to fall into lockstep and do things together at the same time since you can't create a wall around your particular sovereign country. When you pollute, the pollution goes everywhere and it affects the entire globe. And we're being asked to do things that no one else is being asked to do. That having been said, the United States is one of the key innovators, if not the key innovator, on all things green. Uh, whether it's solar power, whether it's alternative fuels, whether it's electric cars, we've been at the forefront. And there are many states in the United States that currently exceed the Paris standards. So we're sort of, um, without sounding like I have a a touch of hubris here, we're sort of walking the walk, not talking the Mm -hmm. talk. And we wish that... It's innovation over regulation. Exactly. We wish that our friends would join us. Ambassador Sondland, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you, Randall. That was Ryan Heath talking to the US Ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland. 
After the conversation was recorded, Politico's Jakob Hanke broke the news that a World Trade Organization panel has found in favour of the US in the Airbus dispute, and Ambassador Sondland gave us this additional brief statement. Ultimately, what the United States is seeking is an end to subsidies for Airbus and the recovery of damages. However, if negotiations between the US and EU don't elicit a change in this behaviour and a recovery of those damages, then the United States will suspend concessions and resort to tariffs. The President will ultimately make this decision and he is prepared to act quickly if necessary. And that's it for this special edition of the podcast. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular weekly edition with Annabelle in London, Reem in Paris and Matt in Berlin. We'll be looking back on the week in European politics and Brexit and Reem will be interviewing the President of Georgia. Let no one say you don't get a variety of guests on this show. Thanks for listening. Talk to you Thursday. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.